everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Dallas Noctegal. Thanks for joining me tonight, today, whenever you're listening. I'm enjoying a cup of peppermint tea, and you may want to grab a relaxing cup of tea or something, because we are talking about something slightly controversial. I know. Let's get into it. Today, I'll be talking about observational drawing versus copying a photo in drawing. My question to you, listener, is how are you drawing right now? How have you drawn in the past? Do you like to copy from photos? Do you like to draw from observation? Well, I know that there's always a time and a place for both, but today I'm mainly making the case for observational. And here's why. When we observe and work from real life, we have to translate a three-dimensional form into two-dimensional illusions on a flat piece of paper or canvas or whatever your medium is. A photograph, even though they can be helpful in the end, and I would say after doing a lot of studying from life, it's already a two-dimensional interpretation of reality, but it is not the same as reality. So, we've got three dimensions in front of our eyes, and our mind has to figure out a way to represent those three-dimensional forms on a two-dimensional surface. I'm actually going to make the, what do I want to say, the metaphor here. I want to make a metaphor here. This reminds me a little bit of um, when you're going on a nature walk and you've decided you want to draw something. So you go into beautiful nature land and you see a lovely flower and you pick it. So your goal is to take it home or otherwise displace it and go somewhere to sketch it out. But what has happened to the flower? It's dead. So it's wilting. And now you're going to draw a wilting, lifeless flower. I think that taking a photograph can be similar. You're kind of flattening and wilting the vibrancy and the life and the actual thingness of the thing, for lack of a better phrase. There's no life in it is what I'm trying to say. So a little homework for you is if you can look up some paintings or drawings from someone who has done something from observation, like Vincent van Gogh, or um, any plein air painter, 
look at how they've represented things and now look at someone's work who has copied from a photograph and perhaps they've painted it but they've copied it from a photograph so that's how I'm saying this could be controversial because you could have strong feelings about photography I have nothing against photography I think it's beautiful and I think it's an art form in and of itself but I'm more wanting to talk about the educational value of observational drawing Something that no photograph can capture is the actual full range of color and value of a scene that you are finding in reality because our eyes are amazing. They interpret and can access the full or a, a larger range of the gamut of colors. Um, and now think about this. When you're taking a photograph of something, cameras don't do this as well as the human eye. So you're having less values, you're having less color range in your photograph that you've taken. Now, if you've imported that photo into your computer, now your computer screen is translating that photograph into something that you can see on your screen. And I'm willing to bet that there's even something lost in translation there. Now think about printing that photograph. Now you've taken the photograph that hasn't captured the full gamut. Now you've put it onto a computer that has translated it to digital pixels and now you're wanting to print that, and what can your printer do? Is, is Does the printed image ever look as, as good as it does on the screen? In my experience, no, it doesn't. So that's like three levels where you're losing detail and vibrancy and life. So I'm not saying that photographs can't be beautiful. I'm saying something gets lost when you're wanting to learn how to draw in three dimensions. Something that cameras also do is that they distort linear perspective and depth of field. Think about your eyes. We have each two eyes. Most of us have two functioning eyes. So information is coming in stereo. Information when you're taking a photograph is coming in through one lens of a photograph, which is a completely different lens mechanism than the human eye, one single human eye. Um, so what a camera lens does is that it bends light in the form of a circle. It's a circle shape. It's bending light around instead of synthesizing two even more complex inputs, which would be your eye lenses. So 
take some time to look at some photography of buildings that are supposed to be representing, I'll say a building, straight on from across the street or something. Look at that photograph and notice how the sidewalk in front of it is slightly bowing down in the middle. It's not a big exaggerated curve. It's a small one. It's like an upside down rainbow shape. Also, you'll notice that the sides of the building aren't true straight lines going up. They're kind of bowing in. And so I realize there's a little bit of perspective as we are shorter than most buildings. And so it's receding back up into space upward from us. But when you look at drawings done of the same buildings, taken from the same vantage point, the lines are truer that go upward because that's, that's what our eyes are doing differently than a camera. Very interesting to me. I hope I explained it okay and that you're understanding what I'm saying there. It's fascinating. So I talked a little bit about drawing nature. So this relates to that in that when we are studying nature, this is not something we're reading from a book. Primarily, we are out discovering these things for ourselves by being in God's creation. So we're taking it in visually and we're digesting it intelligently. And how do we narrate this information? We draw it. I think that W.G. Collingwood in a parents review article said it really well. He says this, but when our books as in Arden are running brooks and when we listen to the lessons of the trees, what sort of notes are we to take? It is only a part of the teaching of nature that can be put into words. Much that she says and that we do well to know cannot be written down in characters of any language except that of painting. She speaks to us in forms and colors and the impressions we receive are lost unless we can note them down in form and color. The laws we discern are incompletely stated in printer's type. Indeed, they are often quite invisible even to scientifically trained men, whose science means only book learning, who have not the artist's eye for lines of structure and movement. It is not merely a question of the amount of enjoyment received, but of actual perception and instruction. Examples could be given of serious mistakes arising from the want of an artist's eye to observe natural phenomena and an artist's hand to record them. But the value of drawing as an aid to science study has been so generally admitted that nothing need be said if it were not for a widespread notion that the instantaneous camera has replaced the sketchbook and that the young student of the 20th century will only need to buy a Kodak in order to beat all the old observers. 
that was quite a long one. And he said a lot in there. Pause the podcast for a minute if you need to think about all that. Hello again, if you paused. I'm back with you. My takeaway from Collingwood there is that there is just something kind of unexplainable that gets lost in translation when you are explaining nature in words because it doesn't come to us in words. It comes to us in visuals and sounds and feelings when the wind is blowing and everything is happening and it's right there in front of us. So this is sort of a mystery to me too, but I still think he's on to something, even though I cannot quite wrap my mind around it. Okay. When you draw, you have a piece of paper or a canvas or something in front of you you're going to record on. You also have a chosen utensil in your hand. You have a medium such as paint, charcoal, chalk. Um, So you're touching your utensil or your medium. You're touching your paper. You're using a big range of motion in your arm. This is making me think that we have several senses involved when we're recording this information. And I think of it sort of like an Etch-a-Sketch, how you're turning the knobs with your hand and it's recording and etching the image on the screen. It's, it's very mechanical. And so I think that when we use more of our bodies, it takes muscle memory and then you get even the feedback of the pull of the pencil across the paper, the pull of the paintbrush, and how that feels different than the pull of vine charcoal, compressed charcoal, tempera paint, whatever your medium is, you're learning to use it in a graceful way, and you don't cultivate those sensitivities when you're taking an image, especially on your phone, when you're just tapping your thumb against a little imaginary button on your screen of your smartphone. And when you're, I guess if you're doing film photography, there's a little bit more muscles involved because you're adjusting your lens and all of your settings. And with digital, you can do that as well. However, I think there is something to getting that feedback from your medium and you're kind of fighting with it a little bit and then you settle into a sweet spot of how to use that thing and it takes a lot of practice. So all I'm saying is that I think when more of the body is involved, I think that a relationship with that thing is going to be more well cemented into our brain. So that brings me very well to my next observation about observational drawing is that you're forming a unique relationship with the subject. So that could be a natural object, it could be a landscape, a person, 
a building, some some architectural area or some scene. We are forming a relation when we spend time with something, carefully thinking and translating and reproducing. We are narrating that thing. So we are cementing this new relationship in our mind. The thing that this observational drawing is doing for the backlog in our brain is it's storing our mental picture gallery with vivid and living pictures. This is something that doesn't happen when we're just photographing or copying. It really only happens with observational drawing. Um, we need this broad mental gallery to call up images later for drawing from memory. So if you tell your child today's task in drawing is to recall a scene from a fairy tale that we're reading or a scene from history from one of our living books, there mental gallery will be well stocked with things in our real world if they've observed them and drawn them for themselves from observation and they can better make these imaginative scenes i haven't i haven't really read about all of the deep science brainy things that go on behind it but i think the principle still stands that that's how we're storing that it's it's I'm relating it to a picture study that we do in a Charlotte Mason education we basically have an object lesson over a famous painting a picture we sit with it for five minutes I think older students a little longer and you are etching this thing into your mind looking at all of the things that you can and then you put the picture down faced away from you and you recall back everything that you remember in the image so those charlotte mason says even are now things that the child can carry with them their entire life because they've stored their mental picture gallery with these beautiful things so I think that's how we do, th we do the same thing in nature. Observational drawing is hard. It's also something that you have to do relatively quickly. It's, it's the difference of having something printed out for you to refer to and you can hold on to that thing as long as you want, and you have an indefinite amount of time to finish a drawing that you're copying from it. And so I'm also not going to say that this isn't useful sometimes and that you can't use this. But again, I'm talking about the educational aspect of the act of drawing. With a scenario like that, when you're copying from an image, how many times are you going to fail? You're going to probably sit with it for a while and be precious about it. I like what Miss Clara Liu, professor at RISD, says. She says, 
when she, you know, she's explaining that, um, this, this is a college, she's explaining that students will oftentimes be coming in and they've only been trained on painting or drawing from copies. She says that students become accustomed to working at a very slow pace. For anyone who aspires to be a professional artist, this approach is inefficient and unsustainable. Students become precious about every drawing they make, which sets up an impossible expectation that every drawing must be successful. They are so afraid of making a bad drawing that they refuse to try anything new. This severely limits growth and keeps them from expanding their abilities. What I'm hearing from that is that we must allow for failure. I don't like to say it, but we need to fail. We need to not be keeping these things that we're trying to do as so precious to us that we can't um, learn from the mistakes that we're making. When we are drawing from observation, we have to make quicker decisions. People move. Living creatures are active. Plants are blowing in the wind. They're growing over time. The tree in my backyard is bigger than it was a year ago. So things are growing, moving, the light is changing. In the course of even 30 seconds, that's a, a cloud could move over your head. And a drawing is very characteristically different because you're capturing something over time. You can try to recall what it was like five minutes ago when the light was different, but s some parts of your drawing are going to reflect different things over this period of time, which just makes it so unique. This is recording your personal perspective of your subject, of the landscape. It's completely unique to your eyes, your point of view, over how long amount of time you've spent there. So it's just a very unique thing. And I think a photograph is, it's less than a second in time. So it's something that theoretically could be reproduced several times. I don't think a drawing could be reproduced several times, even from artist to artist. An artist could go to the same place the next day and the drawing could look completely different. So that's something I've never really articulated out loud before. So there's that. What do you all think of that? Do you have a different point of view? I am open to discourse on this podcast. And if you have an opposing view, please get a hold of me. And I'm not afraid to talk about it. So you know my email, contact me, Instagram, however you need to. Basically, my ending point is that failure is necessary to growth. We don't adapt unless we fail. Things are going fine. We just 
keep doing what we're doing. Um, something practical you can take away from this concept is don't treat every single piece of paper as something you want to display somewhere, uh, give to someone, show off to someone. That's not really the point all the time and most of the time in educational drawing. You're practicing. If something ends up being great that you appreciate and you want to show to someone else, go for it. But don't see every piece of paper as an opportunity to showcase a perfect product. Turn the page if you mess up. Just see if um, doing a few short sketches on a pad of newsprint before you want to get something down onto nicer paper. Just know that you need to allow for and account for failure. In life drawing sessions, we usually do at least three short two to five minute gesture drawings. And even people in that amount of time can do however many they want. You can do 30 seconds or whatnot. You're kind of just getting warmed up and you're trying to find the composition you want. So don't be afraid of just turning that page when you think you've messed up or you just want to try afresh. It's probably going to be better the second time. In my opinion, I like the metaphor of it being like that first pancake that you make. When is it ever good? I don't like the first pancake. The second one is much better. Think of it that way. Okay. Bottom line, adapt after failure. Adaptation of the brain is growth. All right. We've come to the point in our show where it's the weekly dose of Mason. I will be talking about volume four. I'm currently reading through that one with my book study. It is entitled Ourselves. I'll be reading a section from page 156 in chapter 15 under Spoken Truth. This is the subheading Veracity. First among the handmaidens of truth, that is, spoken truth, is veracity. The habit of letting our words express the exact fact so far as we know it. Having spoken what we believe to be the fact, let us avoid qualifications. Do not let us say, at least I think so, and at least I believe so. Perhaps it was not so. All the girls were there, at least some of them. We walked ten miles, at any rate six. Such qualifications imply a want of veracity. We are self-convicted if a loose statement, of a loose statement, and try to set ourselves right with our conscience by an excess of scrupulousness, which has the effect of making our hearers doubt the truth of what we have spoken. But what are we to do then, having said a thing? We begin to doubt if it is true. Words once spoken must be let alone. It is useless to unsay, or qualify, explain or alter, or to appeal for con confirmation or denial to another person. When we think how final words are, 
we shall be careful not to rush into statements without knowledge. We shall not come in with the cry, Mother, mother, there are a thousand cats in the garden. Are there, George? Have you counted them? Well, anyway, there's our cat and another. Oh, Mason, she makes me laugh. I really liked her sort of dialogue with the imaginary mother and the son. I've had so many conversations like that with my children, so. Um, but what I wanted to relate that to was I wonder if our habits in speaking also affect our habits in drawing. Drawing seen as truth-telling on the page. And I wonder if truth-telling in drawing informs our truth-telling in speaking. What do you think? Do you think that they can help each other? And are these the things of ourselves that connect and intertwine? Thank you for listening today, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hi, friends. Dallas here with a couple announcements. First of all, you can follow me on Instagram if you don't know already. My handle is bestowingthebrush, one word. I share stories, uh, usually short tutorials or things that help me in drawing lessons and some of my nature journaling journey. The photo feed is a visual companion to this podcast, and I do a bit of microblogging there. Follow me to see that. Otherwise, if you want to get in touch with me, my email is bestowingthebrush at gmail.com. You can email me with questions, comments about drawing or any other pertinent subject. I'd love to hear from you, so get over there and do that. The bigger announcement, though, that I'm pretty excited about is that upcoming in late January, I will be having my first Instagram Live event, and that will be Saturday, January 26th. I haven't pinned a time yet down, um, but hopefully if you are listening to this and if you want to give me feedback when a good time for you would be to see that, please, like I said, email me, Instagram me. Hey, I want this to be a conversation, so you should just let me know when you're available and we'll see if we can work it out. And if we can't, I'll just put up my video on YouTube and you'll get to see it later. But live would be fun. Great. I'm so excited. Can't wait. See you there.